Aaron, I'm going to slack you something. Okay, I'm opening up your link. Let me see. Um, hold on. I'm on the solutionsproject.org. Very exciting. So I am looking at this infographic that is super interesting because it's basically showing what we would gain by transitioning to 100% wind, water, and solar energy by 2050. That's some nerdy and shit, Melody. I know. I'm a total nerd. <laughs> Listen, I have nothing else going on these days. This is what I'm spending my time looking at. Specifically, I'm looking at New York City, which is obviously our backyards, and thinking about all of these positive things that can come out of this transition. And it's kind of wild to me that we don't just do this. This is dope. You can search by zip code. You can actually like find your city in the United States and what your energy and life savings would look like. I'm clicking on New Orleans since I miss it and haven't been in a year. And it is actually, for us nerds, cool. And New Orleans, which is a teeny tiny city relative to New York, if we transition to 100% wind, by 2050, we could create 30,000 construction jobs, 21,000 operation jobs, and save well, I guess it's 222 lives are lost each year, so 222 times. I don't do math, but a lot. That to me is just mind-blowing because I think we often think about green energy as just like numbers and data, and it feels really far away from most of us, but lives lost to air pollution that we could save every year. I mean, in New York City alone, that's over 1,300 lives every single year. Yeah, I mean, this is where I get to be like the negative person who's like, how much money has been spent by the fossil fuel industry to make it seem like solar power and all of these things isn't worth our time or investing in. But then when you look at the lives that are being lost as a result of these pollutants, as a result of coal and petroleum and the heavy metals, like this could change so much for people. In areas where communities are most impacted by climate, I think it's really important that Solutions Project is working with those organizers on the ground who both look like the communities that they represent and understand the unique challenges of those communities. I'm Melody Serafino. And I'm Erin Allweiss. And we're the co-founders of Number 29, a media relations agency that focuses on sustainability, design, and advancing social change. This is the Enough Podcast. We're here because we know we have enough leaders ready to make local change. And we've had enough of inequitable climate solutions. I think sometimes it takes hearing that fact that really hits close to home because a lot of this feels esoteric to people. But when you put it in perspective of human lives and the things that we can actually wrap our heads around, that to me is where real impact can be made because suddenly it becomes personal. And let's face it, we're selfish individuals. We want to know how this is going to impact us personally. Speaking of selfish, I have a selfish question. What are you doing on the Solutions Project website? Like, why is this your rabbit hole right now? <laughs> so I am on this site because A, I'm a nerd, but B, because our guest today is the CEO and president of the Solutions Project, Gloria Walton, who started her career as a community organizer in South Central LA. So she saw firsthand how pollution and environmental destruction was impacting local communities, primarily communities of color, and is now at the helm of this organization, which is working on climate justice. I mean, honestly, I'm obsessed with the Solutions Project. The entire commitment of this organization is looking towards local leaders for solutions and making it accessible to make change at the local level. I'm so moved by community organizers. I 
I was listening to Undistracted, the podcast um, hosted by Brittany Patnick Cunningham, and she was talking about the incredible community organizers who are working in Chicago to prevent this factory that breaks down metals from opening in their backyard. And this is a predominantly Black and Latinx community, and they are going to be breathing in those metals. And, and this is a story that's not being told, and it was just so remarkable to hear about those efforts that are underway right now. Yeah, and I think it's really important to reinforce just how impacted Black and brown communities are by the way that we're treating our environment because it is disproportionate. And that's why it's so important to be working with the leaders who are on the ground, who are part of those communities, who can understand the challenges that they're facing. You know, Gloria started her career in South Central LA on the ground as a community organizer and having that experience of working with the community and in the community helps guide her today as she's leading the Solutions Project. Wow, when it comes to climate, South Central LA was the perfect entree point and for all the worst reasons, <laughs> you know, and some amazing reasons too. So like South Central is a community that is situated in the center of freeways, the 10 freeway to the north, the 105 to the south, the 110 to the east, and the 405 to the west. So you can imagine all the diesel trucks, cars, SUVs, you name it, just driving all up and through and around our community. It's a highly concretized area, um, so minimal green space. It is highly polluted. Communities are often living next to oil drilling or fracking sites or industry. So that's the reality of South Central LA. And so if you know, if you're in a highly polluted area, that also means that public health isn't as great as it can be. When you're looking at the county, it was our communities that were the sickest and often the first to die. The power of it though, were the people and it was Black and brown people living side by side and coming together, being involved and active in their community organizations like SCOPE, which is my former organization. Folks were involved and really understood that in order to change their conditions, that they needed to be at the center of change. You mentioned SCOPE. Can you talk a little bit about what SCOPE is and what brought you into that work? Yeah, so SCOPE is a community organization that focuses on power building, community organizing, and leadership development. So I started as an intern at SCOPE, <laughs> fresh out of college, and honestly didn't know that being a community organizer was even a thing, right? I thought that was kind of like the 1960s and 70s with like civil rights and women's suffrage. But when I came across this internship program at the UCLA Labor Center, they placed me at SCOPE, which was an organization founded by Anthony Thickpen, a former Black Panther, um, well-known movement builder and strategist across the country. And long story short, that summer internship turned to a year, that year turned to seven. And, you know, Anthony asked me to run it. I was a pretty young ED. And then I ended up running it for 10 years. Wow, that's amazing. But it also obviously speaks to your passion and commitment to this cause. So how did SCOPE ultimately lead you to the Solutions Project where you are now? So SCOPE was actually an inaugural grantee of the Solutions Project, 
meaning that we were one of the first organizations that Solutions decided to fund and also amplify. So in addition to funding organizations directly, Solutions Project also shines a spotlight on organizations, leaders, and their climate solutions. And we do this because all too often, you know, media and the climate platforms that are out there don't cover communities of color um, in the ways that they should. So Scope was an inaugural grantee. I was super active, uh, very opinionated, passionate, and often had conversations with uh, the former executive director, Sarah Shanley Hope. And I guess she enjoyed those conversations because she eventually asked me to join the board of the Solutions Project. At that time, we were predominantly white board, lots of men, and our funding for BIPOC leadership was at a, a little over 40%. But what was really important to me coming from community was if we want to be effective in this space, we really have to disrupt status quo philanthropy. And for me, status quo philanthropy was really under investing in places and spaces that are innovating, uh, particularly places and spaces led by Black, Indigenous, immigrant, women, and other people of color. Everyone was talking about equity, but the reality is that if we're really practicing equity in action, we're going to overinvest where we've been historically disinvesting or underinvesting. And we eventually ended up transforming the board to kind of be more representative of the organizations that we invest in. So having some more BIPOC leadership on the board. And then we moved our just shy over 40% investment in BIPOC and women leaders to upwards of 95% plus. And so from there, Sarah and the board actually asked me to come in as the incoming CEO. And I wanted to make sure that we as an institution were not competing with our grassroots partners. We're often the liaise between businesses, big funders, high net worth individuals, and these frontline organizations. And so what we don't want to do is compete with the funding of these organizations, because as we talked about, they're already underfunded. So what was important to me is to actually tap into dollars that our organizations and leaders don't often have direct access to and try to pivot those dollars back into communities where they belong. I love that. Solutions Project practices trust-based philanthropy. Can you explain a little bit of what that means and how it differs from traditional philanthropy practices? Yes. When I hear trust-based philanthropy, the first thing that I want to say, I guess the punchline is like, liberate the capital and get out the way. (laughs) That's kind of what I want to say. And um, what I would say it is in a nutshell, but it, it really is instead of us setting an an agenda for how our funds and resources go, we actually trust the expertise and direction of communities that are actually doing the work on the ground and leading the innovation. We are humble enough to get out of the way and do deep listening and learn (laughs) from their leadership, understanding what it takes to actually do the work because all too often it's these organizations that are making a dollar out of 15 cents, which means that the people capital is taxed. And so folks are overworked, underpaid, and 
it's understanding that that's the context of the nonprofit industrial complex that so many people are navigating. Therefore, what can we do to make access to capital and resources a little bit easier, right? How do we screen people into our processes versus screening people out? And it's always communicating. So I don't feel like I'm alone in this work, you know, because it's daunting work. Um, it can be overwhelming, but when you feel connected and tapped into a social justice movement, who are a bunch of people who have each other's back and not only their communities back, but like the country's back, you don't feel so alone in this work, right? And so we lean into that trust and we see it as a partnership. I think that's probably a good lesson for a lot of different things is get out the way. Let people do the work that they know how to do. Yes. And that they're on the ground and expert in doing and let them lead. And let them lead. Because they're already doing it, you know, right, without right. the they're funding f- there. And so imagine if we resource people to win. Yeah, I would love to hear what are some of the things that you're working on right now or focused on right now that you can share? Yeah, um, one thing that we're experimenting with right now is what we're calling the funds for front lines. Essentially, it's about liberating capital <laughs> and liberating capital in a way that puts dollars into a pot that is actually governed and stewarded by the very communities that we're funding. And so right now we're really trying to fundraise for that initiative. Another thing that we recently did uh, the last week of February, February 22nd through 28th, was the first ever Black Climate Week. And during that week, we essentially celebrated Black climate leaders. And this was really important to us. We know that you know, February is Black History Month, but of course for me as a Black woman and for a lot of our communities and for Black people in general, Black history is made every single day. And, you know, I think it was in 2018 when I went to the Global Climate Action Summit and I found so few Black leaders throughout the summit who were given the opportunity to share their stories and their innovations. And God bless Regina Hall, um, one of our celebrity partners, She decided to partner with us, and because there was minimal space for Black leaders to share their stories and innovations, she said she's going to share her platform and honor Black women in climate every week, and she did this for nearly two years on her IG channel. (laughs) And these were women, yes, leading in science, business, policy advocacy, government, and so much more. New York Climate Week saw this launch And they reached out and they want to figure out how we can work together moving forward and invited us to join forces with them for New York Climate Week this year. That's incredible. So will you do this annually then to sort of honor these change makers and people who have been on the forefront of advocating for environmental justice? Yes, we're definitely going to do that. Um, We're also doing uh, Women in Climate Week this month since it's Women's History Month. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, I think this also just disproves many people who think that we need this one moment to honor these five people. And it's like, actually, there are hundreds, Hundreds. if not thousands of people who have been doing this work for a very long time who deserve to be recognized. So I think that that's a really nice way to do that. (laughs) You hit it Um, on the nail. Yes. (laughs) So obviously, over the last year, we are all experiencing firsthand the dire need for the U.S. to refocus on sustainability, equity, 
from the ground up. Can you speak a little bit about this moment we are in and why now is the time to recreate and transform our relationship with the environment? Yes. Um, So one thing that's coming to mind for me is our grantee partners in New York, Uprose, Push Buffalo, and New York Environmental Justice Alliance. And they basically passed the country's strongest climate bill, which essentially committed New York to 100% clean energy with a set-aside commitment of 40% to invest in frontline communities. And it was this victory that inspired the Biden-Harris commitment of 40% climate investments to environmental justice communities. And so as Solutions Project, we want to make sure that it's grassroots communities, kind of like the Fund for Frontlines, the ones who are closest to the problems and the ones who are innovating solutions that benefit everyone to actually have a seat at the table informing the strategy of investments. All too often, it's like, oh, just give these dollars here and then we're going to continue to do things the way we typically do it, business as usual, and keep polluting these communities. But that's exactly what environmental justice communities don't want to happen. We recognize that 40% is a good start, but it is the start, and we gotta push that number even further and recognize that it doesn't mean that we continue to allow cap and trade, um, which is this policy that gives corporations the ability to continue to pay to pollute, right? Like it's trying to reverse all of those toxic ways of doing things. I think about, gosh, Mississippi and Texas, for example. You know, I'm from Mississippi. I was talking to my mom, you know, when they had this power outage from the snowstorm that recently happened. You know, my mom was like, oh, Texas is the only one on the news. Like, no one's talking about Mississippi. They don't care about us. You know, no one invests here. The president needs to know what's happening here. And that was one of the things that we talked about in our launch of Black Climate Week was just sharing my own personal story with my family, who was one of those families sleeping in the cars with babies, right, just to stay warm. And my mom didn't have power for nearly two weeks, and she didn't have water for over three weeks. Like, her water just got turned back on, but it's not safe to drink, right? So they're still recovering from that, and I know that that's still happening in Texas as well. So this is about our infrastructure, right? And and I think it was American um, Society of Civil Engineers that gave our country's public infrastructure a C minus. And so this is an opportunity to create more secure, affordable, uh, localized, democratized energy, water, and food systems. And that's what communities on the ground are pushing. And there really should be no reason why we can't do that. It's pretty embarrassing that that is our average grade. It's not shocking, sadly, but it is quite embarrassing. And we should be embarrassed by that. Exactly. And so the role of government should be to respond to that, right? Government isn't about leading the demise of our country and its people and our resources, but it's about leading the transformation, figuring out a way where we can transition workers who may be employed in dirty industries into renewable industry and ways that create entry-level opportunities for a new workforce to enter into the sector. And having these jobs be unionized so that folks can have a living wage with benefits. And it's government and industry leaders that actually have a big role to play, but they don't have to play it alone, right? It's, as we've been talking about, it's communities on the ground, on the front lines, who are innovating the most transformative climate justice solutions. 
So it's, it's about having all hands on deck to accelerate a clean energy economy that benefits everyone. Is there a message that you would give to our new administration about this? Hmm. One thing that's coming to mind, I wish you could see it, but it's this beautiful hand-woven badge that I received from Honor the Earth. And at the bottom of it, it says water protector and land defender. And now it's like I keep this badge on my desk to remind me every single day that I am a water protector and a land defender. And definitely as a water protector and land defender, I have a responsibility to say, stop line three and honoring my mother and my grandmother who instilled values in me and seeded the woman that I am today. There's grandmothers on the line right now trying to stop the development of line three, which is in Northern Minnesota on the White Earth Reservation. And the Anishinaabe and Ojibwe tribes are kind of leading this fight and calling for an executive order from the Biden-Harris administration. And it's similar to Keystone, right? The Keystone XL pipeline and how it was stopped at Standing Rock. It's Enbridge Energy Company who's kind of putting this pipeline through the community and underneath their water systems. But the The interesting thing is I heard Enbridge talk, right, like one of their representatives, and they're like, oh, well, this is just about modernizing and upgrading the system. And it's not like Keystone XL because we're not building a new pipeline. And listening to him, it was really triggering because what he's not understanding is that, for one, these are just the facts. The replacement of this pipeline involves building a new 337-mile pipe along a whole different route in Minnesota that's going to double the amount of oil the current pipeline carries. But the point is that it's not about repairing an old, outdated energy system. That is not modernization, right? Modernization is about the future and thinking about sustainability and transitioning from that old system. So it was just so bizarre to hear him frame it that way Versus like hearing what these indigenous communities are saying, which is just like, that's the old way. I mean, that feels like an apt metaphor for so much that's happening here in the U.S. right now. We don't need to continue to try to make the old ways work. We need to just break it down and start from scratch. Like we're beyond that. You know, climate funding is just a small portion of the annual U.S.-based philanthropy, and it's really less than half of a percent of all of the climate funding is going to equity-focused nonprofits. So how is that changing? Can you dig into that a little bit for us? You know, change is a slow process. So that's one thing I would say first. (laughs) And right now, everyone's talking about equity. Uh, The reality, though, is the dollars and the investments have not caught up to the rhetoric and all the position statements that everyone's put out. (laughs) Um, But the good thing is that the reason that everyone's having the equity conversation today is because environmental justice and racial justice communities took to the streets and they're saying, pay attention and don't only pay attention, take action and do something now. And quite frankly, it's like people on the inside, kind of our elected officials, it's like a dominant theory of change where we feel that it's that one person who's creating the change. But the reality is that it's all the communities on the outside that are pulling this person on the inside of an institution that has perpetuated racism 
sexism, xenophobia, homophobia, all of these things. And financial and corporate interests are pulling that person on the inside of an institution to the right. But it's all the communities on the outside that are saying, hey, this is our vision for change in our communities. And pulling that person on the inside towards that agenda, a community-based, community-led, community-dreamed agenda, community-activated agenda. I think that's such an important point to make because, you know, one of the things coming off of our really crazy, exhausting election cycle from this last year was we can't be on the precipice of collapse every four years. It's not sustainable for anyone. And the only way we're going to change that is not by just continuing to change who's in office. It has to be that they can't continue to operate the way we've allowed them to operate. Exactly. And I think that's where we're at now is, okay, we've got a new administration. Let's hold them accountable. Let's ensure that in another four years, what happened last year can't happen again. And I think it's really, really important to keep that in mind. So I appreciate that perspective. I appreciate Uh, your perspective. (laughs) And in the social justice movement, we always say that it's a leaderful movement, right? There's a leader in you as much as there is in me and all of our communities, as much as there is in our elected officials. And government and our industry leaders really should be learning from community organizations that center people and their solutions, learning from indigenous communities who know how to coexist while honoring and protecting and restoring our land and our natural resources. Learning from BIPOC communities who understand that climate justice is a matter of racial justice and racial justice is a matter of public health, and public health is a matter of affordable housing, which is a matter of our economy, right? They understand this intersectional approach uh, to create new modes of production and energy systems. Yeah, I think it's so important to see that interconnectedness and to understand how one thing fuels another or impacts another for a community. You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about industry leaders and the role that our industry leaders have to play. Like Bill Gates just put out this new book on how to avoid a climate disaster. I want to talk to Bill Gates. Bill Gates, where are you at, right? Like I want him to help organize other industry leaders to take responsibility and to do better. The old way is one that is unaccountable and has created and festered a process of extraction, exploitation, oppression, and violence. We know that it's industry leaders and corporations that have the largest carbon footprint. And people are letting us know that things can no longer just be about profit and capital and sacrificing people, places, and our resources. But it's time for things to be about justice and repair and the sustainability of our communities and our future. I wanna ask just one more question which is, you know, you've obviously spent your entire career in this social justice movement around environmental justice. Is there a particular moment or a story that stands out to you and keeps you motivated? Wow. There's honestly many. But the one thing that I will say that's kind of a through line um, to all these many different stories is the rigorous love that grassroots leaders have for their communities, for society, for this country, and for this world. And if we could all only love each other rigorously like that, (laughs) how much better would our world be?
It's so wonderful to hear her just talk about her career and her perspective. And also, I think we've talked a lot about storytelling as stewardship. And I think often these stories get excluded, one, because they don't have the money or the publicists or some of the connections that are involved, you know, in hearing her talk about what local organizations do. I hope people take a moment to reflect on what their backyard literally looks like and the organizations that are on the ground doing the work. Take that extra time to dig in and see where we can make a difference. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of white saviorism that happens in the philanthropy space, which isn't to say that we don't want funding from major donors. It's important. It's what keeps these things moving. Mm -hmm. But then they need to know enough to have enough self-awareness to step aside and let the experts take it into their own hands and make lasting, meaningful change. So Melody, for I also want to leave people with something that they can do. And I feel like Gloria gave us some incredible marching orders, especially around this ridiculous pipeline that's being built. Yeah, there seems to be no shortage of people trying to destroy the planet through pipelines, right? And I think the important thing to keep in mind here is that even though it's not necessarily building something new, it's still disruptive and it is an old way of doing things. Like we need to move past just trying to fix broken systems and start fresh with renewable energy. So if people are interested and want to take action on this, you can go to stopline Three. Dot org. There's a petition there that you can sign. There's a film about what's happening. There are fact sheets you can donate. There are some real action steps that you can take to better understand what's happening and to put pressure on the Biden administration to put an end to this. And we'll include this in our show notes just so we make sure that people have access to this petition. But obviously, the Keystone XL pipeline got a lot of attention, but that is not the end of the work. It's certainly, the end of the work is when we've transitioned entirely to renewable energy and we're not extracting dirty oil and coal and other disgusting things that are killing us. Oil is the opposite of modern. Modern is building clean energy. Yeah. Enough is a podcast from Number 29 and Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by Natalie Brennan, Sophie Bridges, and Aaron Kelly. Pineapple's executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Original composition by Hannes Brown. Special thanks to Sue Ariza. Stay tuned for season two of the Enough podcast coming April 14th. I mean, now we just have to get Bill Gates to listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>